Welcome to the latest Green Section podcast episode. I'm your host, Adam Miller, Northeast Region Agronomist and Director of the Green Section Education Outreach Program. We've got a cool episode today. We've got two features. We'll start with Todd Voss, who's the COO at Double Eagle Club in Ohio, and talk to him about sort of his path from a superintendent moving into sort of the the GM and the COO role, what he's learned over that process, and what he's really learned that he wished he knew when he was a superintendent now that he's on sort of the other side of things. And then the second half of the episode, we touch base with Dave Johnson, director of Grounds at the Country Club. And this is the first conversation we'll have with Dave on the podcast over the next few months in preparation for the U.S. Open. We touched on sort of the renovation work that's been going on, how he got to the course, a little bit about his background, and how the course looks three months out. So hope you enjoy this episode. Todd, thanks so much. This is awesome to talk to you. Before we get into your position at Double Eagle, you went to school at Penn State. You know, you've spent most of your career in Buckeye country. So I've got to, oh. you know, who are you rooting for? on game days, you know, and if it's not the Buckeyes, how are you, how are you able to sort of put up with everything you've got to deal with, I'm guessing, at, at Double Eagle then? Well, good morning, Adam. No, it's, uh, I love being a, a, a Penn Stater in, in Buckeye country. It's funny, uh, uh, one of our uh, Goldens was named Nittany, and every time the vet would call, we'd say, oh, we have Buckeyes ready to come and pick up. No, it was funny. I was part of the Ohio Turfgrass Foundation for years and uh, would go down and talk to the classes over the years. And I always joked around and took a Penn Stater to keep Ohio State organized. So, no, it, it's good. And, you know, the turfgrass industry, it, it's a big family. So, uh, but, yeah, when game day comes along, you know, I have my blue and white on. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, it's hard not to hold on to your, your alma mater. I'm a Wisconsin grad for uh, for my undergraduate degree and then went to Purdue for grad school and so a lot of people know the Purdue side of things and that's the question they ask me is are you interested in that team and it, it, not not really it's kind of hard to just let go of your, your your sort of your first love so all right let's let's sort of dive into double eagle and your position there I've never been to the course it sounds like it's a really special place I know it's a top 100 and in, in a really uh a big market, you know, with no shortage of good courses just north of Columbus there. So can you give us some background, you know, on when the club was founded, you know, when the course was built, uh, John H. McConnell and, and sort of his origins and, and the story around the club's name. My naive impression of Double Eagle and the name was just someone got a Double Eagle at one point and that was, uh, you know, the origins of the, of the name. The history of uh, John H. McConnell, it's, uh, he was a rags to riches story. You know, he grew up in the Panhandle of West Virginia. He went, um, you know, he worked in the Steels Mill, uh, was in the Navy, fought in World War II on the U.S. Saratoga. And then uh, after that, he got married to his high school sweetheart, went to Michigan State, was captain of the football team, still had to work third shift to make ends meet. I mean, you talk about a world of how it changed. Here he is on the GI Bill. He's playing football, but still has to work third shift. And that gave him the idea of Worthington Industries, to treat people like to be treated. And the biggest thing was, you know, on his life story is he saw the unions at that time taking a five-hour job and making it last three. And he's like, you know what, if we get this done in four, um, we bill for five, we can, we can then split the profits. So he created the largest non-union steel processing in the country to this day. 
and what he does with the employees is there have profit sharing. And then so later in life, uh, as his company grew, became public, you know, golf became a bond with people, as it is all across the world of, of golf bonds, everybody. And he just felt, you know, with all the great clubs we had in Columbus, that there were just too many rules. There was a local club in here town, great club, and he just wanted to have overnight buildings. He wanted to have cottages, cabins. He was on the board, actually he was club president, and got voted down, then he just said, fine, one day, I have the resources, I have this land up in uh, uh, north of Columbus, and I'm just going to build my own golf course. And at that time, he had this tournament called Big Reds Roundup. It was a pro-am. And uh, on that time, they had a bunch of golf pros, um, basically the guys who were sponsored by Toyota because his best friend was head of Toyota's for the Western Hemisphere. And with that, he met Tom Weisskopf. Uh, and Tom tells a great story with this. He brings Tom Weisskopf out of the property and says, what do you think? Can this be a good golf course? And Tom was like, I think this could be a great golf course. And as Tom tells the story, this is in like 85. Tom doesn't hear anything from, from Mr. McConnell for a couple years. And then all of a sudden, one day he gets a phone call and says, okay, we're ready. All the permits are done. I'm ready to go. Let's go build this golf course. And Tom's like, okay. And uh, But that his, his, his PGA career was slowing down at the time. He had partnered with Jay Morish and Double Eagle was born. It's funny because my father, who's also in golf and was a golf course superintendent, he went from golf, then he went to become a general contractor. And I'm like, you know, I want to go work back in grass. And then once I graduate, because I was at Silver Lake at the time, and I left working for him. And then I went back when I graduated Penn State. Then I'm like, I want to go back, get back in the dirt again. To me, Double Eagle was just a construction project that I went to. It wasn't going to, I didn't know what it was going to turn out to at the time. It was just, it was a good place for me to, to then I guess if you want to call it spread my wings. That's how I ended up at Double Eagle. I think the next question you had is, is the name of Double Eagle. Mr. McConnell's with one of his best friends and Tom Weisskopf were having lunch. And Tom was explaining that him and Jay are creating this signature, if you want to call it, um, of a drivable par four. And with that drivable par four, you can get a double eagle. And uh, Mr. McConnell's friend looked at him and said, well, there you go, John, there's your name. You wanted something that is about golf, double eagle. So they looked at Tom. Tom says, I think that, again, would be a great name. They did their research. And uh, hence, double eagle was born. And then if you have, you know, we have our two eagles as our logo. And uh, as Ms. McConnell always said, the two eagles, um, the logo should stand out on its own. So very few things will you ever see that say double eagle on them. That's, that's really cool. You talk about Mr. McConnell a little bit, you know, not really liking the, all the rules associated with, um, you know, with some, some golf courses and some clubs. Uh, so, and, and one thing you mentioned was he didn't like all the committees or maybe just wasn't fond of them, however you, you said it. Uh, so is that structure still in place at, at Double Eagle where, you know, it's, it's really just a single owner and there's no boards or committees? So I started here as second assistant and worked my way to first assistant, left to go build another golf course, came back in 96 as head superintendent. I'm 25 years old, Adam. You know, um, and now I just got the keys to the kingdom. I started asking him some questions and he's like, if you don't want to do the job, I'll hire somebody else to do it. And with that, because he did create a club, there are no committees. There are no club president. There is no board. Um, he's like, he looks at me and goes, I've hired you to do the job. You know what's best. If you don't want to do it, then I'll hire somebody else. And, you know, to a 25-year-old, I'm like... Holy cow. But it gives us, and it's worked for us, it's given us a freedom. Yes, like any club, we are very budget conscious. And, you know, we need to know where the money's coming from. 
But one of the things he did say to me, which there's, I have a million one-liners of advice that he's given me over the years. I don't want the golf course suffer because you wrote a number down on a piece of paper. If there's a problem, we'll work through it. You have my support. And another thing that he said to me, and that's kind of a golden rule, is treat people like you want to be treated. Whatever decision you make, I'll support it at least once. And so that gives, as I always say, as a joke, they gave me just enough rope anytime I wanted. But, you know, just like a leash, you know, the only can go so far. But that just makes double equal unique. So it's one of those things of, you know, when I was a superintendent, it was, you know, top dressing in the heater, not top dressing the heater, doing this or doing that. And I will say some, some of my philosophies changed when I did take over the entire club operations. Yeah, I think, you know, going to, you know, a, a situation where you don't have a committee, you don't have boards, it's really sort of one person. That, that I could definitely see how that would be invigorating and like, wow, I can, you know, I, I've got this. And then at the same time, it's like kind of depends on that person, too, and, and their confidence level in you and, and their ability to know what they want out of the golf course. That's a, a big struggle, obviously, a lot of superintendents have with, you know, committees and, and the changeover and, you know, or even just owners that maybe don't know exactly what they want or just they change their mind at different times and it's it can, it can be a bit of a headache so I'm sure you had plenty of headaches still over over that time with just uh one one person sort of to answer to but yeah it could could have been a different scenario for sure oh without a doubt and again you still have to you're, you grow the grass double eagle he did set the standards high I mean there's so many guys out there that are doing such an amazing job growing grass but we have been known to be one of the best conditioned golf courses in the country. And, you know, hats off to the staff. But I think it's also because we've had those freedoms and no committees that allowed us to do, you know, what's best for the turf. You know, I like to break it down, some, some pretty simple things. You know, every day, every decision we make, it's based on politics, agronomics, economics. You know, can I afford to do it? Is it best for the turf grass? And is it best for us to keep our jobs when we're all said and done? And so we kind of keep that philosophy going forward. So you started out as an assistant at Double Eagle and, and eventually became superintendent uh, after uh, you're working at a, through a growing at another property. Uh, so I think you've been there about 25 years. You know, talk about your role at the club, how it's progressed and sort of evolved over the years from superintendent to director of golf and now uh, COO. It's been an amazing ride. You know, it's, it's one of those things of you know, over time, there's a trust level and there's also being involved level. You know, as a, as I'm talking to this audience, you know, there's going to be, there's golfers that are going to watch this. There's superintendents that are going to watch this. There's going to be GMs that are going to watch this. There's going to be boards and golfers that are going to watch this. I guess the first thing that it was just, I guess, in my personality as I was involved with the club, that was the hardest thing for me to do because I wanted to be left on the golf course, just let me do my job, leave me alone. To get involved, it, that, is, that was challenging for my personality. Be involved in how the club works. It was one of the things of, Todd, we're going to have this event out here. Do you see any issues? It's just, again, just being involved. As time progressed and there was a need, I got promoted. I sometimes I think just because of lack of options, but that's not a, a bad thing. Um, but no, um, the McConnell family, um, John P. McConnell, they just want people, they want to be able to trust them, and they want things taken care of. And even though when I got promoted, I said, I don't have any experience running food and beverage. And another little thing that most people don't realize about Double Eagle, it's almost like we're a destination club. We have 44 beds currently. Uh, most of our members are national members that fly in from all over. So, you know, we have in our housekeeping staff, there's 20 between the cleaners, the turndown service, 
in the kitchen. We do breakfast, lunch, dinner, and we run seven days a week. We don't close on Monday. So we're a lot different than a normal club, if you just want to say, or golf club. And it, again, just makes it just makes us a little bit more unique. Uh, it's funny because, you know, we'll have a new new member, and I'll be going through their orientation. And they're like, okay, is there is there like a money game on Saturday mornings or this or that? And I'm going, no, you kind of bring your own game. You know, it's it's because we're the second club for all of our members. And, uh, but it is an amazing membership, uh, very supportive. Uh, but then the day it's, it's Mr. McConnell's club. It's Mr. McConnell's sanctuary. And we want to try to keep that that way. So as chief operating officer, you know, I think superintendents have always had this curiosity, just sort of what, what does that role look like? What are the responsibilities that you have? And I understand it's going to be a little different knowing you've got, you know, the different different type of club that you just described. But, you know, who are you overseeing? Who do you report to? You know, what, what's a typical day look like for you? To take a step back, you know, for to fill the position, I think just about every golf course superintendent has the potential to be in a position like I am. We tackle problems straight away. We tend to be very direct, which can be good or bad. We've had to maintain staffs, and whether the weather's bad or this, um, and to make things work, we tend to be a very organized group. And so I look at all clubs out there going, hey, when you're doing your, your search, you know, sometimes it's better to look within, and it worked for me. Now, on the other side of it, I warn all superintendents, be careful what you wish for in a way. For me personally, my wife and I, who've been married almost 30 years, um, the golf business is tough on everybody. Well, throw a restaurant in there, and it's just got a lot tougher. Now, we chose not to have kids, but I do not know how I would squeeze kids into any of this. So you ask what a normal day is. Well, every day is a little bit different. A normal day for me is is going to mow greens. It allows me to take and, and stay in touch with what I fell in love with at the beginning. Because, you know, when I'm in turf school, no one ever talks about, hey, someday you might need to understand food and beverage or understand hotel or understand committees and boards and people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things for me of um, you, you learn some of your weaknesses really quick. And one of my biggest weaknesses, believe it or not, Adam, is spelling. I have a hard time with spelling. So when I write my letters to the membership or to anything or, you know, it's to update everybody, I'm like, I have to have five people, you know, proofread my letters because spelling is a problem for me. I realize, too, that being direct sometimes it not the best way to go about things. Sometimes you have to be a little bit softer. But no, so um, after that, I go home and shower, shave, uh, put on nice clothes. Um, it's not a coat and tie. Normally, I'll put a coat and tie after 6 o'clock. But then, and then you come up and say, okay, what issues do we have? Is there anybody, is there anything mechanical? Are we short anything? You know, where are the menus? Um, kind of the whole operation of the club. And then depending on how busy we are or not busy we are, uh, a lot of times I'm in the kitchen expediting and uh, because, you know, training and, you know, today's world of staffing is just tough. And so having that person that kind of is the go between the chefs and the servers, it just no one's going to yell if I'm in the room. You can't afford to lose anybody in today's world. The kitchen can kind of be its own little, you know, as I say, animal to tackle and kind of tame a little bit. Then again, it, it's again, talk to the membership, making sure things go all right. Then I like to kind of go back to the golf course and let's see how the day's going and making sure that are, are we dealing with you know traffic issues disease issues golfers you know the normal stuff that superintendents deal with on a day-to-day basis we have we have an amazing team at double eagle i tend to be a little bit more controlling than most so my hands are on everything but i am lucky enough i do have a gm underneath me 
I do have a food and beverage director underneath me, but I'm kind of like the, the center of the wheel, if you want to call it. But I also try to make sure that wheel can still go around if I'm not available every second. And so we all have, as I say, our unique talents. And with those talents, uh, we work together as a team. And like I said, there's, there's just some things that, uh, as I, I like to say, you know, what does your GM do, Todd? I'm like, everything I don't want to do. And they're like, kind of laugh. I'm like, no, we, we host a lot of fundraisers. Um, and those fundraisers, you know, have to say what you can do with the member, what you can't do with the member. With that, it also goes into somebody has to then write the budget for that person. And I like to be the person that says, yes, we'll go ahead and do this event. Here, let me pass you off to our general manager. He'll work out all the details and dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And let me move up next to the next big picture thing. We went and we built a part three golf course and we put an irrigation in. So I was heavily involved in all of those. Um, currently at the club right now, we're looking at uh, housekeeping, have its own maintenance building, along with a viewing pavilion of the golf course and three new cottages. So, you know, days now are meeting with architects and engineers and, you know, it's like we're going through construction. So it's like, okay, we have to have the wetland officials out with the EPA and we're having a canal crossing. I'm like, it's a canal. It's not, you know, the Mississippi River and Oh no, we still have to hire the engineers to design this. And, you know, it's a normal day it is there's no normal. You're kind of here, as I like to say, to just be prepared. Again, it's not for everybody. And that's why I caution, especially superintendents that, you know, we used to always just get home at, go home at dark. Well, you know, it's now I, I see, you know, I come home at midnight, then, you know, back in at work at six sometimes. It just, it happens. Yeah, it sounds like there is no normal day for you other than you're very, very tired at the end of it. No, it's, it's funny because when the off-season comes, um, you know, it's like I want to get away from golf as much as I can and hotel. And, you know, we go rent uh, a little villa somewhere and we go scuba diving. It's like I spend my life underwater as much as I can during the wintertime. Yeah, you've got to figure out with with that type of schedule, and obviously superintendents have the the same challenges of just sort of balancing life and work, but no matter how busy you are, finding that opportunity or time to recharge is is super important. Something you said said earlier about when courses or clubs have an open position in that, you know, general manager or COO type um, that, you know, it's worth them looking in-house. And while it's not, you know, really common, um, we're seeing more and more superintendents moving into those types of positions because they're oftentimes, you know, operating the largest portion of the, the overall facility budget. They're, they're having such an important influence on golfer satisfaction and just sort of driving value to, to the facility. And, you know, that's what people are there for. We've, we've been reminded of that during the COVID pandemic, that that's what people are really there for is, is for the golf course. So what are a few things that surprised you or you didn't necessarily expect when you took on this this new role from being a superintendent to, to eventually moving into the, the COO position? You know, there, there are a lot of things I wasn't prepared for. I guess some of my mindsets before, you know, you go out there on the course uh, when I was superintendent, uh, it's too wet for carts today. Then I started realizing, especially because now I close the carts and I'm dealing with the members and guests of the clubhouse, all it does is upset everybody. And for our type of membership, they're just going to go get back on their jet and go fly someplace else to play. And then I start looking at going, wow, I just lost, you know, $4,000 in, you know, hotel revenue. They're not eating and drinking here. How much damage are they really going to do? So now we've kind of jumped that philosophy. And, and I know there, there's going to be some of my close friends are going to just shake their head at me. But we don't close for carts now. 
unless I deem it unsafe. Or if we're so flooded you can't physically drive a cart because it'll go underwater from point A to point B. Yeah, that means every fall there's a little bit more sodding we have to do. Cart path ends just are beat up. There's times you have to realize that, you know, your job is to provide a golf course. This is not your golf course. It's, it's either member-owned, corporate-owned, single-owner-owned. That really changed how how I dealt with things. We built a great team, specifically in, in maintenance, and, and I know a lot of courses do, where, you know, the maintenance guys, let's go, go jump in the lake, guys, and everybody's lining up and jumping the lake. It's it's We've trained them to, to be a team, to, to get the job done. And all of a sudden, I'm asking this from the same management of the clubhouse, and they're going, no, no, let's, that's not how we did it before. And that was one of the first rules that I had to create of, I never want to hear it. This is how we've always done it. You may explain to me how we've done it, but just because we've done it this way for the past number of years doesn't mean that's how we're going to do it in the future. So you touched on something around building building a team, and I think that's so important, and it's it's a lot easier said than done. Now, having really seen it from both sides, I'm curious if you've got any tips you know, for, for what superintendents can do and what you know, GMs or COOs can do to make sure that relationship is as good as possible, because it's if it's not good, it, it's it's going to create obviously tension and a tough work environment, and you know maybe maybe some long term challenges that that both people face. I always like to look at it as as I'm no better than anybody else, and so one of my keys to success, which drives some people crazy, is I literally have done every job at the club. Um, I will do every job at the club if it needs to get done. I'm not going to take and go to our membership or owner or guests and go, I'm sorry, you don't get that today because I couldn't find somebody else to do it. That, as you're building a team, that's where you get your respect. You're there, you support them, and again, you treat them like you want to be treated. And that's really the key. Our goal at Double Eagle, one of my mottos is, I want to be the best we can be for that given day. Being in the clubhouse now, you know, obviously your your fingertips are all over every aspect of the of the club. But um, being you know spending that much time in the clubhouse, having regular interactions with the golfers, uh, you know, certainly more so than I would imagine your superintendent is. You know, do you think you've got a better understanding of how golfers view the superintendent's job? Yes, and I've been. It's almost been like a life mission now to educate them. And understand, you know, the direction we come through because everybody want to say because everybody knows where I came from. You know, Double Eagle is a small club, so all the membership knows, and, and some of them to this day still question it every once in a while. You know, I just had a member call me. And, you know, you know, I've been the CEO for the last decade, and he wants to nominate a person for our national membership. And he goes, he goes, well, how do I do this? I'm going. He goes, well, should I talk to you? I'm like, not only should you talk to me, you should write the letter to me. Letter to you. And I'm going, yes, I'm complete control of the club. And then next time I'm with Miss McConnell, after I do all my due diligence on the person, I'll bring that up. But but no, it's it's uh, uh, I always try to under, make them understand a little bit. And I try not to talk in, as I say, turf terms that we all understand. You know, hey, guys, it's 95 degrees out there. Um, a double eagle, one of our proudest things is, is after 30 years, we're still POA-free. And it's because we don't kill them during the summertime and make there no grass there. And they're like, well, Todd, I have this is this is my special day and I bring these groups in. And again, you try to find that balance. But uh, I do say it's kind of my mission to educate the golfer, uh, our members and guests uh, of what that position is, what it encompasses, why we do things. 
but I'm also very careful not to talk in, as I say, turf terms, because it just goes right over their head at that point. Yeah, that's so important. And that's, you know, hopefully any folks, any GMs or other COOs that are, are listening, you know, can take that that sort of same passion to try to do as much as they can to educate the golfer and, you know, just sort of provide a little bit of insight as to some of the, the things that the superintendent is, is, you know, dealing with or or having to manage through on a day in day basis. Um, So I wanted to get you out of here with this last question and it's a pretty light one, but we couldn't do this interview and ask you about the beach bar, tiki bar that you have along the shores of the irrigation pond. So how did that come about? Um, how cool is it? You know, I've got family in Springfield, Ohio, so I'm curious, you know, how do I get an invite? Um, <laughs> I saw Dannenberger was there, uh, you know, at, at some point. He posted a picture on Twitter. So, you know, give me give me a little bit of info on that. Adam, it's um, my love for the islands is second to none. Once I started working crazy hours, and again, even I, I started this before I was still the superintendent, you know, I just saw this opportunity. So, I am lucky enough, if you want to say that, to be living on property. And so that also means when the alarm goes off at 3 in the morning, I'm lucky enough to be living on property. So, again, that it's kind of um, beware what you wish for. Um, you know, I'd recommend uh, any golf course to put their super tent on property because uh, one of the things that I think that made us successful is my ride every night. Um, sometimes it's with the wife and the dogs and adult beverage, and sometimes it's just me and the dogs and my notepad. But that is one of our keys to success. And I think I think that is sometimes hard. Again, it works for me, but not every superintendent can go and take the ride every night um, because they, they want some family time too. But that, that was one of the things. Walking the course, um, again, key to success. All of a sudden, um, Double Eagle in 2007 ran out of water. Uh, it was a tough, tough year. Um, had great support, but it just so happens behind the house that I have, was 12 feet higher than our irrigation pond, and I had 12 acres just sitting there doing nothing. It was just our natural area. This process started in 2003, where I ran the drainage all the way through the golf course, um, through three holes, to build a future lake. But I also tied in the drainage system, because one of the stumbling blocks um, with Mr. McConnell is he hated construction. He wanted to be able to play his golf course. He didn't want it to always be changing to that. And that's the hardest thing he had, the Tom Weisskopf had, because every time Tom comes back, he wants to change this, do this. He's like, oh, no, no, you know, it's fine, just the way it is. So with that, that also adds a different challenge. Um, and maintenance every year, we take two holes and restore them to the original shape and size. So we don't, in theory, will ever have to go through a big renovation because we're restoring greens to their shape. We're keeping things the... Uh, you know, we're keeping things exact. But anyway, so all of a sudden now I have this six-acre lake in my backyard. I was over at at John McConnell's house, and he was doing a fence around his property, and he had six pallets of pressure-treated two-by-sixes sitting there. You know, it's like, oh, I got an idea now. Uh, And I can can tell a story. They can go on and on and on. Um, But my wife was working out in California at the time, and she fell in love with sandal paddle boards. We have this lake in the backyard. You know, she said, hey, can I get a little bit of sand? And I'm going, what? Because you're on a golf course. You can give me a little bit of sand. I'm, I'm tired of walking in and out of the mud. And so, as I say, a little bit of sand, you know, some available wood. And next thing you know, the beach bar was bored. But what was great about it for us is um, I like to go to bed early if I'm not working, you know, 9 o'clock. So, I literally, the party comes to us. You know, when I want to go to bed, I just tell everybody, unplug it when you're done. But... 
No, what we've done is it's kind of it's turned into its own little neat thing. My wife, um, who traveled the country doing membership marketing for 28 years, COVID now has made her going, I don't know if I want to get on a plane again and live out of a suitcase. You know, we've kind of done that. So we started taking and we put up a flag, a pirate flag that allows the golfers to, hey, the beach bar is open. And so they can see the flag. They come over and uh, beers and cocktails are on us. It has been, as I like to say, that's my little sanctuary. It's like I can go to the islands just for a moment and, and leave kind of double eagle behind, but still be at double eagle. And uh, so over the years, it's kind of, as I say, it's never done. You know, at the very beginning, we had a little structure. Um, and then uh, after a speaking engagement in Hilton Head, uh, I came back and said, you know what, we need a ferry dock, you know. So let's build a dock on it. Uh, after I got done renovating the clubhouse, I had all these pieces, parts. I'm like, I need to build a kitchen. So it kind of grew from there. And and now it, uh, um, I mean, it's uh, it, you can Google it, um, but it's now all the celebrities. I mean, it's amazing who has come through there. Uh, we've had some really neat events here at the club. Um, Brighter Days with Jason Day. He brings in a bunch of celebrities. Well, everybody wants to stop by the beach bar and uh, take pictures. And it's kind of like, it's more talk about that because, you know, I'll be, I'll be busting tables of all things in the evenings when everybody's, you know, doing their appetizers. And wasn't that the neatest thing, a beach bar on a golf course? So uh, it used to be an urban legend of that double eagle going, I hear there's a hidden bar somewhere. And I'm like, yeah, it's not so hidden anymore. But yeah, you actually come off the golf course and, and you're on double eagle, but then you have to drive down this dusty, dirty, bumpy path. And so... Uh, and then all of a sudden you see this oasis. Um, but Adam, for your invitation, if the flag's up, the bar's open, come on in. But, you know, you come in, uh, you come into Columbus, Ohio, I'll put it up specially just for you. That sounds awesome, Todd. I may have to take you up on that. Appreciate you uh, spending time with us today to, to talk about uh, your role at Double Eagle. And I'm sure it's been, uh, this is going to be really, you know, good information, very helpful stuff for a lot of superintendents, whether they're looking to, to move up or, or not. Um, so really helpful. Again, thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. I, I appreciate it. Again, I, it's, it's hope the whole industry. And again, it's, it's one of those things of if you're a private club or a club in general, doesn't necessarily have to be private and you start to look like, hey, I need this person. Um, it, yeah, I just say look within. It could be your golf pro. It could be your chef. It could be the superintendent. But just but know, know what you have. Yep, great stuff, Todd. Thanks so much. We're now going to move into the conversation with Dave Johnson, Director of Grounds at the Country Club. Dave, here we are. It's March 11th, so we're, you know, T-minus three months or so to the uh, U.S. Open. Let's sort of dive into it. I know you've been at the Country Club since 2018 as Director of Grounds, but it's cool. You, you grew up in Mass. You know, you got an early start there. Tell us a little bit about your background in the industry before we sort of dive into U.S. Open prep. Yeah, sure thing. Good morning, Adam, and thank you for having me on this morning. I am a Massachusetts native. I grew up about 40 miles west of Brookline, a small town called Dudley, Mass. Lived across the street from a golf course. Started working on that golf course junior year in high school, right through college. And uh, at one point in my college career, my parents are looking at me, what are you going to do with your life? And uh, that's when I transferred into UMass studying turf and the business side. Remained in that area for uh, the first part of my career. Became a first assistant at Wachusett Country Club in 97. Graduating college, I worked there for seven years before I was hired as 
superintendent at Whitensville Golf Club. That is really where my career took off. I was able to meet Gil Hamps while working there, and we did a restoration of that property. Uh, it's a really special place if uh, you haven't been there. It's a nine-hole club, but beautiful spot. That allowed me to interview for a position down on Cape Cod at the Wiano Club, where I was hired in 2014. Worked with Gil down there, did a renovation to the property, basically contouring the fairways, contouring the greens, expanding everything out, just restoring what was there. Same thing with Whitensville. When it came time for Bill Spence to retire from the country club, I was fortunate that um, these members belong down at Wiano and they liked what they saw down there and uh, the rest is behind us. It seems like four years ago was yesterday because it's flying by so quick. Yeah, the U.S. Open's going to be here before you know it and just the rundown of your of your career is, I think there's a similar arc for a lot of folks, myself included, where we, you know, just got interested in golf course maintenance, you know, at at an early age and saw it was a neat opportunity to, you know, make a living and and really enjoy the outdoors and everything. So really, really cool background. Let's dive a little bit into the country club and some of the, the specs around the course. It's been a while since, They've, uh, you know, had the U.S. amateur there in 2014, but, um, you know, thinking from a professional side, it's been a bit since we've been there, and obviously the course has changed a significant amount. So give us a rundown on kind of what the country club is about from an agronomy perspective, like the grasses, you know, we hear a lot about the size of the greens, Um, be interested to hear about that, what what's underneath the greens, um, anything else that you think you might be interested to know from like a little fun fact about the country club? When you step onto this property, it is like stepping back in time. That holds true for the golf course. There isn't a lot of infrastructure that it has been updated in recent years besides what we've carried out. So it's all native soil, um, really old grasses, poa annua from tea to green. It is a POA golf course. There is some bent grass that is uh, on the fairways growing with it and on the the greens, a little bit of bent grass growing there. The size of the greens, they've expanded out. So we've probably increased them, I estimate, about 20% working with Gil preparing for this. But it it wasn't a U.S. Open thing. It was more cultural or uh, agronomic thing. We need to get water off of the greens. No internal drainage. And we had to get rid of some of the sand damming that was around them. Still have a lot of work to do post US Open, but we've really been working hard over the last, it was three years, I've been here for four. We didn't start this work until 2019. I had to get my feet under me and do a lot of planning and budgeting, things like that. So it's been a, it's been a fun ride. Yeah, it sounds like it, just knowing the U.S. Open was was coming to town right when you started, I'm sure things have, have flown by. One of the things that I think will be really interesting, um, at least maybe not to a lot of people, I think it's going to be interesting, with the greens being that small, I, I've noticed this at lots of lots of USGA championships where you've got volunteers and everything happens really, really quickly in the morning. And with some of those greens, like I'm just thinking of how quickly your teams are going to be able to get a double cut and a roll or whatever, you know, because they're just so small. So that'll be, that'll be interesting to see. It's like you blink and the, the green's already prepped and ready to go. Thanks for pointing that out, Adam. That makes me feel a little better. Maybe I can sleep tonight now. 
<laughs> so going back to 2004, I mean, that's that's pretty cool that you started to work with Gil before I would say he was the Gil that he is now, obviously. So you've got a, a, a probably a lot of interesting stories to, to touch on. Maybe we, we hit that on another podcast episode, but you mentioned the restoration work, the expanding of greens. What are, what are some other big changes that we'll see in the championship? Anything around, you know, bunkers or new tees or anything like that? 17 of the 18 tees have been either modified or um, expanded or rebuilt. The bunkers have all been, I won't say completely rebuilt. They've all been touched in some way. We have liners under them, drainage under them, all new sand, and some of them have been completely rebuilt. It was all part of Gill's recipe. The fairways obviously recontoured, the widths of the fairways adjusted. And the big thing is the greens were expanded. So that, just for member play, it's been really fun and enjoyable for our members and looking forward to some new pin locations out here. The beauty of it is, and working with Gill, he put a premium on not losing the feel of the golf course. When we rebuilt the bunkers, or if we were touching them, he really put pressure on us to make it look old and any sodding we did around them we had to go into our native areas and take out large chunks of fescue and place them onto the faces of these bunkers if we were totally rebuilding and it was instant gratification they looked 100 years old and the place just looks really old and rugged and it's a great feel and we did all this work and you don't even know what happened yeah trying to do a, any, any sort of a bunker project or something you know how do you describe it to make it look old seems really really hard i wanted to touch on the green expansions was did you have to do all that yourself or was that some stuff that bill spence had started or you know because that's a tricky process and it sometimes takes a few years before those areas are strong enough to handle the the same amount of intensive maintenance that the rest of the greens get in 2018 we started planning the project with gill Right away, we grew a 10,000 square foot nursery out of our aeration plugs, so we were growing our green plugs, POA, on our property. And in 2019, we began the first one, which is hole number 11. We actually expanded that green. It's a drop shot. It's a 130-yard par 3 downhill. We expanded that green from 2,500 square feet up to 4,100 square feet. And if you look at the golf hole, you can see it. Hopefully people can find old pictures of it. But he just pushed the green surface right out to the edge of the fill pad. And who did it? It was my staff. It was Gil on a rake. There were uh, many times he was putting the contours into the edge of that green just to tie it into the landform properly. We were helping as best we can support him. We had a contractor um, doing the excavation because we did core down. Um, to match up the soils to the existing push-up green around the edges. That green, we had installed the XGD while we had stripped it. Um, that was the only full strip. The rest of them, we left the centers of the green and just stripped the edges. Gil and his team and our team, along with a contractor, um, carried out all the expansions over a three-year period. Along with the restoration, you've done a great deal of tree removal and tree management. So how has that improved both course conditions and sort of the overall feel of the course? Well, it was important that we didn't lose the feel. That was uh, one thing. So we identified the trees that were affecting agronomy the most, um, identified the trees that were most healthy and selectively removed what we could around. And we started around the green, green surfaces, trying to correct those environments, get them some sunlight, some airflow, um, and then moved out around the tee boxes and fairways. We did not clear cut anything. We just select cutting, did a lot of aggressive pruning, 
and what has it done for agronomy? It's night and day how this golf course performs compared to what it did five years ago with that selective removal and correcting the environments. Sometimes it takes, you know, a couple of years to see the full improvements from a, a turf health standpoint with certain trees here or there. In other cases, it's almost instant. So it's it's always nice when it's it's the latter in that scenario where, you, you know, you, you take a tree down and you see turf's better. We don't have bare soil here or thin lies or, or whatever. So we're three months out from the U.S. Open. No doubt things are moving fast and furious at the course. So talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing on the course right now. How is it looking from a winter standpoint? Are things greening up? Are you still under snow? What, what's the course look like now? Yeah, so middle of March, and we're in and out of winter. One day it's spring, the next day it's winter. Uh, we pulled in yesterday to three inches of snow. By the afternoon, it, all, it had all melted off. We actually cover our greens here in the wintertime. And this past Monday, so four days ago, we removed all of the greens covers because it looks like the next 10 to 14 days, mild. Uh, we don't see any uh, real dips in the temperatures. So green surfaces came through the winter nice. Granted, I don't like to say we're home yet because we know what spring can do to Poa Annua. All the way through the golf course, the short grass is uh, looking good today. As I described, I'm looking out my window right now. It's about 45 degrees. The sun's out. Uh, we're starting to clean up the golf course. So feeling really good about where we are this time of year. Good. That's exciting. That's that's what we all want to hear, not not just uh, our, us at the USGA. Obviously, everyone wants to you know, see the course shine, and, and we're really excited. What does the next month look like from a course prep standpoint? With the turf coming through the winter like this, we hope to, we hope to um, airify all the surfaces as soon as possible once we know we're going to be growing a little bit and it can recover. And the build-out has already begun. I mean, I'm looking out my office at um, our Primrose Golf Course with 27 holes here, and much of the Primrose um, runs along the 14th hole on the championship course. They have already started building the road that comes out in the Champions Pavilion starts on Monday. It is um, all hands on deck and the build is out and we're, uh, we're excited just to get the course um, ready, to, ready to play for our members and wake it up for the spring. Yeah, it's a fun time of year, especially with the, the U.S. Open on the horizon at, at the country club. So thanks for taking the time this morning. Look forward to uh, chatting again in, uh, in, in another few weeks to, to get another update. Nice talking to you, Adam. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Green Section Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Miller. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast either through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at USG Green Section. And make sure to subscribe to the Green Section Record. It's our free digital publication that's published twice each month. And it includes information about golf course maintenance practices, field observations from our team of regional agronomists, and the latest turf grass and environmental research.